Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right. So we are joined here today uh, by a podcast panel discussion. Three gentlemen are joining me. So this is uh, my pseudo co-host, Andy Bellavia uh, with Knowles Corp. We got Ryan Crodel with Valencell and we got Chris Economos uh, with PhysIQ. So why don't you each go around and just introduce who you are and a little bit about your company, starting with you, Andy. Uh, thanks again, Dave, for having me on another time. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with this group. Uh, I'm responsible for marketing and business development for Knowles Corp in the in-ear space. Knowles originally developed small microphones and speakers for hearing aids and later branched into music earphones, hearables, smart speakers, and the like. And it's the in-ear products like hearables that I'm responsible for. Awesome. Ryan? Yeah, Ryan Crodel at Valencell. Um, thanks for having me again, Dave. It's good to talk to everyone here. Good to be back. Um, so uh, Valencell makes the, the biometric sensor technology that goes into wearable devices of all kinds, everything from smartwatches to fitness bands to armbands, and more recently in, um, in the health and medical device sector as this whole convergence is going on between consumer wearable devices and health and medical devices, we have kind of sat in the middle of that and uh, embedded our technology in both consumer devices and uh, and more and more so now health and medical devices. And um, certainly in this environment, seeing a, a lot more demand on the, the health and medical side of things. So looking forward to the discussion. Cool. Awesome. And Chris? Hey, Dave. Um, it's a pleasure to participate here today and appreciate the opportunity. My name is Chris Economist. I'm Chief Commercial Officer of PhysIQ. Um, at PhysIQ, we really specialize in, in collecting and analyzing these continuous uh, data streams that these guys have been talking about. Um, and so to do that, we have a clinical grade, um, enterprise ready platform for uh, ingesting continuously streaming data from these uh, wearable biosensors. And then we have a portfolio of FDA 510K cleared analytics that take the data and turn it into, into insight. And so we are um, uh, licensing our platform and analytics to biopharma companies who want to use these data sets to um, uh, support their clinical trials and their commercial strategies, as well as payers and health systems who want to be able to deploy wearable sensors such that they can proactively uh, manage their at-risk patient populations. Awesome. Well, thank you three for joining me today. Um, this is going to be an awesome conversation. So I have, you know, the, the array of people that we have on this, we have, you know, Andy being just a longtime veteran within the hearable space and, and uh, just to have a lot of knowledge and expertise. So I figured he'd be good to have on to help me to guide this conversation. Um, you know, Ryan with Balancell, I've had him on the podcast before, but just having somebody that's uh, in the business of 
collecting all of this biometric information. And then Chris, um, who I haven't had on the podcast, uh, you know, to really help us to understand the data output and the actual uh, analytics side of what we're gathering. Because as I've mentioned before, it's one thing to gather all this information, but we need to take it a step further and make sense of this. And so, you know, to frame this discussion, um, obviously with the whole pandemic going on right now, um, we're, you know, in the midst of, I think, a whole lot of different trends that are being accelerated. And, you know, for me personally, I've been writing and blogging about biometric sensors and the idea of wearables serving the role of preventative health tools really since the onset of future year. And so now it's becoming as clear as ever that this is a really important role, particularly during pandemics and public health crises that I think these body-worn computers can play. And so I think to kick things off, um, I want to go to you, Ryan, about you know just this idea of the different types of metrics that sensors like the ones that Balancell produces can capture. Um, I would love to kind of hear from you, you know, particularly around metrics like respiration rate, blood oxygenation, um, you know, these different metrics that on the surface you hear them, okay, these, you know, a, a body-worn sensor can now capture uh, respiration rate. What does that actually mean? And, and put it in the context of why that would be an important metric to know, um, particularly uh, with, you know, something that is a respiratory illness like COVID um, and how we might be able to be a little bit more proactive with our approach here, uh, you know, in terms of understanding what's actually going on with our bodies and maybe using these tools as part of a early diagnostic system and in just a better way to diagnose and detect um, anomalies in the data that there might be something going on um, even before you might be showing symptoms. So Ryan, why don't you start with maybe just a, a, an overview of some of these different metrics, how we've even gotten to the point to be able to capture these and then what we can glean from those types of metrics. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic because the um, one of the silver linings, if you will, in this uh, in this pandemic we're in now is really highlighting the capabilities, the current capabilities of existing uh, wearable sensor technology that, in many cases, has been around for years, if not long, if not decades or longer. Um, in the case of something like the the PPG sensor technology that we make. That has been around in finger clips and earlobe clips that uh, measure vital signs in hospitals and healthcare facilities for for decades. Um, those things, so the ability to measure things like heart rate and heart rate variability and blood oxygenation in wearable devices has been around for decades. What what this current environment is is really putting a focus and and really highlighting is the capabilities of those devices and um, and also the the ability and the importance of longitudinal data uh, capture across those different metrics so it's one thing to to look at someone's heart rate or let's say their body temperature or their respiration rate at a given point in time but what, um, where these are really adding additional value and that's really getting highlighted in this environment is understanding at an individual level what that data looks like over time and in a longitudinal sense where you can get an individual baseline on a person 
and understand um, how their different, uh, let's say their different resting heart rate or heart rate variability changes in an individual, uh, those may be different between uh, me and you and Andy and Chris. Uh, all of us are going to have different baselines at an individual level. Um, but the ability to see not just what, what's going on when someone goes to visit a doctor, or in this case where we uh, are discouraged from going into, into hospitals and healthcare facilities, what that looks like on a longitudinal basis for an individual. And that gives, uh, in many cases, much better insights into how an individual is responding to whatever they're, whatever they're currently doing or whatever their current environment uh, may be doing to them. So um, that gives uh, unique insights. And the, the capability has been there for many years. What this current environment is really putting a highlight on is what, are the, what those capabilities can mean uh, on a longitudinal basis and also in a, in a remote monitoring scenario where an individual doesn't have to come into uh, a hospital or a healthcare facility to see um, uh, to see a healthcare provider, that can all be done remotely today, and we're really seeing uh, the acceleration of telemedicine, telehealth, and the um, and the use of wearable sensor data in those contexts to be able to get that data and and, um, and identify how an individual's baseline is changing over time. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And Chris, I want to go to you now, um, you know, kind of going off of what Ryan just described with uh, how we can capture all this information. Before recording, you had mentioned a study that you had just conducted with the VA that I would love for you to expand upon a little bit here and share with the audience um, about what we can then actually glean from this information and, and how you worked with the VA um, to make some pretty uh, meaningful insights, uh, you know, based on this type of information that we're now being able to gather from these different sensors. Yeah, so you know, just to build on what Ryan was, was sharing, you know, these, these sensors themselves have indeed been around for, for decades. I mean, the, the EKG, right, or an ECG has been around for, I think, a century now. Um, and while traditionally these types of sensors have been used in an inpatient environment where you have somebody who's lying um, in a hospital bed where, you know, it does, it does make sense to use something like resting heart rate. Um, when you introduce these types of technologies in the real world where people are <clears throat> moving around, right? Um, they're going to the mailbox, they're walking upstairs, they're, 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 they're sleeping, they're awake. Uh, how do you capture these, these data sets in that environment in a way that you can actually make sense of, of what's going on? And so the big leap is in the artificial intelligence, the, the neural nets and machine learning that we can now apply to these data streams to do what Ryan described, and that is you, uh, build a personalized baseline for an individual from which then you can detect very subtle anomalies. And so um, if it's IQ, you know, our first FDA clearance was in an algorithm that did exactly that, and that was then validated in this, this uh, VA-sponsored study that you just referenced. And so with that algorithm, what we're doing is our platform is ingesting continuous uh, vital signs, uh, specifically uh, heart rate, respiration rate, and activity, and doing that from a, a wearable biosensor. And it builds a personalized model of their cardiopulmonary physiology as relationship between these different vital signs um, to then detect subtle changes 
that um, are, are indicative of compensatory behavior within their physiology that can be predictive of um, deterioration. And so what do I mean by that? Well, um, this notion of a cardiopulmonary control loop, uh, just think about you walk up a flight of stairs, your, um, your muscles have to work harder, right? And so they demand more oxygen, which then means your heart starts beating faster and then you start breathing harder, right? So it's this, it's this um, uh, relationship between your activity and your heart rate and your respiration rate. And so with this algorithm, um, we, we automatically build a personalized baseline that reflects that relationship of these different vital signs. And we use um, a machine learning training period. So basically the idea is uh, you wear a sensor over the course of about 48 hours. The, the, the engine learns the relationship between your vital signs across all the activities of daily living. So right? it learns what your heart rate is and what your respiration rate is when you're awake or when you're asleep, when you're sitting on the couch watching TV or when you're walking upstairs. So just think about all the things that you do over the course of that, the 48 hours. And then it automatically transitions from learning mode to monitoring mode, where it's now established a personalized baseline. It, it's learned you, right, in your physiology. And it's taking all the new data coming in, comparing it to that baseline to identify very subtle anomalies that can indicate um, physiological deterioration or improvement. And so in the case of this particular study, we provided uh, 100 veterans with a wearable sensor and a foam uh, upon discharge from a from a heart failure hospitalization. And so they went home. The first two days then that they were home, the system learned what their physiology is like. And then, uh, again, it, it transitions into monitoring mode where it's now checking um, all the new data coming in compared to that model to detect any kind of uh, deviation. And so what we did was we monitored patients this way for 90 days. And it was an observational study, meaning nobody was actually acting on the data. All we were doing was, was looking at the new data, looking at the data in the context then of the medical records. So we knew, statistically speaking, that if you get 100 heart failure patients, uh, you discharge them from the hospital, you collect 90 days of data, you're going to see readmissions, right? You're going to see emergency department visits. And indeed, that's exactly what we did see. And so that allowed us to do a retrospective analysis where we looked at this particular, the output of this particular algorithm relative to those hospitalizations to, um, to, to measure what did the algorithm detect and when did it detect it. Uh, and so we were really assessing the sensitivity and specificity of the algorithm and were we detecting what we should and not detecting what we shouldn't and then how early. And um, uh, for the heart failure events that occurred uh, in this population, we demonstrated on average that our algorithm was, was uh, you know, triggering an alert 10 days prior to that ultimate hospitalization. Wow. And then as you might imagine, um, you know, this is a sick population, so there are a lot of comorbidities. And so for things like COPD and pneumonia and sepsis, it was 12 days prior to hospitalization. And so really long lead time, which then, um, you know, we, we believe is what would give a clinician ample opportunity to proactively intervene to ultimately avoid that hospitalization. So this was, this was published in a journal of the American Heart Association called Circulation Heart Failure um, in February of 2020. And um, you know, we're really excited about these results. That's amazing. 
So I have a question for you. Are you also uh, collecting uh, data so that you have contacts? For example, do you know when a person is walking up a flight of stairs or taking a walk or, and I know this is getting a little advanced, having a heated discussion that might raise their heart rate? You know, did you yeah. put contextual clues in gathering the uh, baseline data? So the contextual data is coming from the accelerometer, right? With the three-axis accelerometer, we're able to get every subtle movement. And so um, it's, it's, that's in, in this combination of heart rate, respiration rate, and activity, right? that's really uh, the independent variable here that we use to uh, provide the context, right? Because if somebody has a heart rate of 140 beats per minute and they're lying on the couch, and maybe something's wrong, right? But if they have 140 beat per minute heart rate after climbing a flight of stairs, well, that could be perfectly normal, right? And so it's, the, it's that three-axis accelerometry that provides that context. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, I mean, this is just so cool for me because I think that it, it, it just brings me back to this um, podcast that I listened to one time where it was Mark Andreessen getting interviewed. And he uh, mentioned, you know, the, the question that the interview asked, uh, he, the guy said, you know, what, um, what do you think about wearables? And he said, well, I actually think wearables are titanically important to the future. Um, he said they're going to be, you know, there's two things that they're going to be able to do. One is uh, basically serve as a home for a voice assistant. And then the other was that he said um, they're, the sensors that are going into them are going to be able to notify you. Um, and he said it, you know, rather simplistically, but he said, you know, it'd be able to notify you that you're going to have a stroke soon. And, you know, you hear that on the surface and you think, well, how is it actually going to do that? But actually starting to understand the progression that we're making toward this, where to your point, um, you know, you have these hospitalizations that are happening and you're saying that, you know, retroactively you were able to look into the data and you can see, well, 12 days ago we started to, our, our machine learning algorithm was able to start detecting things that were showing signs that this was maybe what was going to be leading to that point. And so for me, I think it just is starting to really justify this vision where you have these sensors that are actually playing this preventative role where they're notifying you and detecting and they're playing this role of a guardian to your health. Um, something that I know that is, you know, I think Apple's really keen on this as well, this idea that their wearables can, you know, play into this as well. Um, so I think like with Ryan, do you want to Go off of that. Yeah, if I can just um, jump on top of uh, or, or continue what Chris was saying, I think one of the interesting things we're also seeing out of this, and again, it's it's more of an acceleration of a of a trend we saw before the whole COVID nineteen nineteen scenario, but it's this um, uh, trend around sensor fusion. So trying to get more sensor data in fewer devices. And you're seeing this in, you know, Apple's a good example of this, but really all the, the wearable device companies and med device companies are looking at how many different sensor modalities they can get into uh, a single device or maybe two devices at most to be able to, to generate uh, different data coming from that same individual all at the same time uh, and so you can see things like heart rate, respiration rate, heart rate variability, body temperature, activity tracking, all of those things are possible in a single device today. And what we're seeing is kind of behind the scenes of 
device projects that are emerging um, and not yet on the market is this this uh, area around sensor fusion to be able to um, uh, get as much sensor data as possible uh, from a single device to make it, of course, easier to wear and and um, have the the adoption rates relatively high, but then also just um, uh, gathering as much sensor data as possible with the understanding that we may not yet know exactly what we'll find or exactly what we're looking for, but if we can apply, as Chris mentioned, um, advanced machine learning and AI techniques to this raw sensor data, uh, you're starting to see new capabilities emerge from uh, or, or uh, new outputs or new indications for specific disease states or for specific conditions uh, coming out of this sensor data that we may not have been able to do before we had this combination of wearable sensor data that's motion tolerant and can still provide uh, high acuity data, but then also applying those machine learning and, and advanced analytics techniques to, to be able to uh, emerge uh, or resurface or, or surface for the first time um, new indications or, um, or new capabilities from those devices that can get us more towards that predictive model. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point because Chris, of course, is talking about full medical grade analytics, which is appropriate and necessary when, for example, you know, monitoring a person who just left the hospital. But if you think about mass market consumer devices, you have a completely different opportunity there. And I saw some recent studies that showed even even lower grade devices like a Fitbit you can gather interesting data by the changes that occur, exactly what Chris mm -hmm. is talking about. You establish a baseline, you pick up changes. So it doesn't matter if the, the home wearable device is looking for the differences and you're getting some really interesting uh, results, you know, being able to trap, you know, respiratory illnesses that generate fevers, for example, and breathing changes and so on. With the added benefit yeah. that in a consumer grade device, if it's you know deployed more broadly in the market, you can look at broader trends. I'm thinking of the uh, the Kinsa connected thermometer. I mean, yep. that isn't. I mean, every other person is not using one of those thermometers, and yet it's salted throughout the population enough that they were demonstrating about a two week lead time over to CDC in detecting uh, influenza uh, breakouts, and so. This seems like, I mean, this is an area both Ryan and Chris are playing in. And so from your own point of views, I think you probably have more to say about how you can use even consumer devices along with appropriate machine learning, both in individual diagnostics and in the case of, uh, you know, uh, more societal changes in health. You know, that Kinza thermometer is an interesting example here of, of you know, what the potential is when you're actually tapping into um, continuous physiological data. So, you know, we, we actually believe, and we're collecting data right now um, to hopefully uh, validate this, that body temperature, right? so body temperature is very accessible to everybody, um, but it, it appears as though that is actually a lagging indicator, right, that we, we generate a fever you know, after, you know, sometime after some physiological insult that would otherwise be detectable by these subtle uh, anomalies in in the physiological data and so uh, i just think that speaks to the, the promise of 
the continuous real-world physiological data that you know that, that's now now available. Um, and in fact, these are some of the things that we're focused on with respect to COVID, particularly um, in collaboration with the Department of Defense. So, um, you know, there's just a ton of potential there. Yeah, and it, it comes back to the, the point I was making earlier about this is all existing sensor capability that has been around for a while. And uh, to Chris's point, um, something like with temperature being a, a lagging indicator, what appears to be, um, at least as it relates to the to COVID and other other viral illnesses, is just something as quote unquote simple as uh, resting heart rate and heart rate variability. The combination of those two things, you see an increase in uh, in resting heart rate and a decrease in heart rate variability, and that individual's body is fighting off something, whether it's a, is a physical illness or psychosocial stress, whatever it might be, something is going on there that, that um, would indicate a need for uh, further testing. And so that provides that early warning system, again, with, with um, existing capabilities that are widely deployed in a variety of different wearable devices today. Yeah, I mean, you, you think, uh, okay, so temperature is a lagging indicator and you're still detecting breakouts of influenza two weeks ahead of by traditional routes like number of doctor's visits and so on. Mm -hmm. Add another layer, I'll throw voice into it because imagine now, uh, you know, the future is not that far off where we'll be able to, to detect and make determinations uh, on coughs. Like what kind of cough? You know, when I cough because I've got a bit of allergies, it's different than when I cough because of a respiratory illness. So now you take those markers, heart rate variability, for example, throw it in with, you know, uh, the nature of a person's coughing, for example, you could really, really get early on in, in, in starting to make preliminary diagnoses. Not in detail. You can tell somebody has a respiratory illness, you know, maybe two weeks or, you know, before they really have heavy symptoms uh, without necessarily know which kind it is. But of course, in influenza season, you know, you've got a pretty good indicator what it is. And now with COVID, if you start showing all those signs, you know, you could, you could uh, warn the patient early that it's time to go get tested. And at macro level, you see where hotspots might be developing, right? It seems like a great combination of what both uh, Ryan and Chris are doing here to really get ahead of the sort of pandemic response instead of being reactive to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm now like getting taken back, Andy, to the conversation that we had with Nicolay Veed uh, over at Braggy, where a lot of the conversation that we had was on this whole idea that Ryan just alluded to with sensor fusion, right? Like this idea that sensors in general are becoming so much more widely proliferated and more ambient, if you will. And so I kind of look at this as like a system of different inputs and whether it be body worn or like Andy said, it might be something that like a smart speaker is gathering from the inflection of your voice and the different biomarkers that it can gather there. To me, it seems as if, and maybe Chris can speak a little bit to this, but this idea of putting this all together into a coherent system so that you're, you know, if you have all these different inputs, um, how do you make sense of everything that's being captured so that, you know, if you have this like robust data set and, next, and the next step is to actually make sense of it, um, you know, how do you actually do that in a coherent manner so that there's consistency what's being found? Um, and I guess the question is like, 
is more better or is it more like you need to have that consistency and if you have too much and from different inputs, then you create, you know, inconsistencies with the data and it just becomes too much noise. Yeah. So, um, my data science colleagues, um, at PizIQ would unequivocally say more data is always better. Um, <laughs> they're pretty biased there, but you know, I, I think, um, well, what we're trying to enable is the ability to be able, I really like this term sensor fusion. Um, it's the first time I've actually heard that. I think it's pretty cool and it makes a lot of sense. And what we're trying to enable is the ability to actually do that within one platform. So you've got a lot of different form factors, different modalities, different um, sensor types, different uh, sampling frequencies. Um, and so, you know, what Andy's doing on, on the, um, on the audit, auditory side is is different than right a continuous heart rate or something like that and so what we've aspired to build in our platform is one that is able to take all of that simultaneously so a, a great example um, we actually are running a clinical trial for a company where we are getting um, continuous sensor data um, ECG uh, we're also getting continuous sensor data from a watch PPG based and then um, layering on top of that, we're getting weekly uh, voice recordings. Um, and, and so you've got basically three different data sources from three different, uh, you know, lots of different data types, but it's all coming into uh, one common platform, one database structure where all the timestamps are, are aligned. And it then allows the data scientists to do their magic um, with a really rich uh, varying set of data. Now, um, you know, in that model, right, it, it's, it, it is sporadic voice recording uh, taken over, over a long period of time. Um, and just think about what you can do if that becomes more continuous. And so um, just the, the, the more data that you've got, the richer it's all going to be. But I think the really important thing, the real breakthrough is in the labeling of the data. So Andy currently asked a question about context. Um, you know, a company like Fitbit, has an untold number of hours of data that is collected. Um, but almost you know, very little of that data is actually labeled. It's, we, we, we don't, they don't get the, um, the cause and effect, right? They don't, they're not getting that, the outcome, the clinical outcome or the behavioral outcome. Um, and so that's a really important part here um, in order to really take all this to the next level. We need to be able to understand what, what ground truth is uh, so that we can generate novel biomarkers uh, and new tools for uh, managing people's health. Yeah, I would just uh, add to that. It, you can't overemphasize the importance of of labeled data sets. And we, we, our most recent example of that is this: we now have the ability to measure blood pressure with a PPG sensor in the ear, and and um, we've had over, had to over the last two years or so to build a massive database of close to 6,000 patient data off of 6,000 patients north of 15,000 data sets. Uh, we had to go build that database ourselves, a labeled database ourselves, because nothing like that existed with uh, labels of PPG data and ground truth blood pressure data together in one data set. And so that's uh, the, um, uh, the, the data collection never stops, <laughs> and Chris, um, our our data science team would would echo yours. And uh, more data is always better. 
but uh, label data is uh, uh, the the ultimate in in terms of uh, applying data science techniques to to uh, this variety of different data coming in. Yeah, and and I think one other not only label data, but it's got to be high quality data. Right? And so yeah. while the census have been around for a long time, um, there's still you know, a lot of opportunity to improve the quality of the data, their ability to collect good data on body. It's a really hard problem, right? We're moving around. Yeah. Um, you know, some people wear their watch tight, some people wear their watch loose. Um, there's just a lot of challenges in there. And so that's where there's still opportunity to really, um, uh, improve improve the quality of the signal. So let me ask you two in particular, um, because it sounds like, you know, based on this conversation that the science is there, right? Like it sounds like we've sort of gotten to the point to where this is legitimate and it's been legitimized in the different studies that have been conducted by, you know, your two companies, um, you know, showing that there are there's proof that these different wearable devices embedded with these kind of biometric sensors are capable of serving as early detection devices. So, you know, whether it be this pandemic or the next one or whatever public health crisis comes next, um, what, what, where are we with the general um, just sentiment uh, with the medical community, with doctors and just every type of doctor in terms of their view on this? And, and I'm just curious, like if, if all it takes is that we, you know, we need to outfit the population with a dedicated wearable or uh, ensure that the consumer wearables that are available today are um, being purposed in this direction so that we have a population that are outfitted with these early detection devices. Um, where do you see the sort of the roadblocks with um, this becoming something where it is like legitimized within the healthcare community as um, a, a system that is, you know, worth um, investing in and, and worth um, really driving the population toward as as a solution to helping people to to better identify these kinds of things. So I'll definitely take a stab at that one. You know, traditionally, um, you know, there have been headwinds, strong headwinds in um, in getting widespread adoption for for a couple of reasons. I think. Um, the two biggest ones have been, and, and they're both, yeah, so they're both structural. The, the first is really around um, uh, financial models and, and reimbursement. Uh, traditionally in healthcare, clinicians have not been paid to take care of patients who they don't, are not standing in front of, right? Um, health systems make their money, have had traditionally made their money on patients who are in the hospital, right, or, or, or office visits. Um, and reimbursement for um, you know, preventing hospitalizations and, and, and preventing office visits has not really been there. Um, so that's, that's been a significant one. The, the, the next one is, is just the workflow, right? The whole workflow that's out there is consistent with the traditional, the traditional model, right? I'm taking care of the patient who's standing in front of me in their underwear, um, as opposed to I'm taking care of somebody who may be hundreds of thousands of miles away, and I and we we've seen we've seen a progression right through that, but it it's been painfully slow. I think this is where COVID is really going to make um, uh, a huge impact. Right, we're seeing that uh, patients can um, be taken care of with telemedicine. Right, we're seeing the need for being able to take care of patients outside the hospital. 
I think it's, it's dramatically accelerated the awareness and um, acknowledgement of there are better ways to do it. I think the reimbursement models are still going to be really important um, uh, in order to get the widespread adoption. But, but COVID, I think, has laid bare the issues and shortcomings of our current, our current approaches. And so uh, you know, we're, we are, are optimistic that this is actually going to get people to, uh, to make, to make this, these changes more quickly. Because um, as you've noted, right, the technology is there, the science is there. We, ne we need to get the, the workflow and the financial models to catch up. Yeah, I want to extend that question because you see, as you mentioned, because of COVID, uh, things are moving more swiftly than they were otherwise. I mean, telehealth in general was advancing. Like I know, uh, you know, the U.S. Veterans Administration had kicked off a telehealth program a couple of years ago, and they were already seeing rapid adoption of that, especially by rural people who are far away from the nearest VA hospital. But now you see in light of COVID that, you know, the U.S. Uh, Medicare system is now reimbursing all telehealth visits regardless, whereas there used to be a much higher hurdle, and same with uh, private insurers. And you also see device makers now working specifically on that model. And I'll go to hearing aid companies who have originally were starting to set up systems for making tuning adjustments remotely, but now you can get a medical grade hearing aid and do everything from start to finish. It arrives at your door, you put them in, they do the measurements remotely, they fit them remotely, and so you can have the complete delivery system. In your mind, with those changes having taken place because of COVID, do you think they're now going to be permanent so that we see a permanent advance in acceptability of telehealth? I think so, personally. Yeah, and I I certainly hope so. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see, you know, in this in the pandemic environment, a lot of the the regulatory barriers have been dropped. It will be very interesting to see how much those come back up, if at all. Um, we certainly hope that um, we use this this pandemic environment as a at learn the lessons from this environment about what is possible and what is effective with. Uh, telehealth, remote patient monitoring, and um, a lot of these areas that uh, are, are uh, accelerating the, the um, at least the demonstration of effectiveness of these tools and these capabilities that we have today. Um, one other thing that I'll, I'll add on to what, I, what Chris was saying earlier about the, the reimbursement models, which is spot on, um, underneath that is, is the criticality of uh, proven scientific research behind the wearable data and the um, the outcomes that it drives for specific conditions, specific disease states. And so that's uh, one of the things we love about what uh, PhysIQ and, and Chris and his team are doing is, is uh, a very data-driven approach and, a, a, and an approach that's driven by clinical research to clearly demonstrate the effectiveness of what they're doing. And we need to see more of that in this, uh, in this space, because there is, at a provider level, there's still quite a bit of skepticism about uh, trust in the data. And then, of course, uh, like any data analytics, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you don't trust the data that's coming in from the device or devices, you're not going to trust the outcome of any analytics that come off of that. And so the, the more we can demonstrate those 
um, those outcomes in clinical research, the, the better. And the more you're going to see that uh, drive reimbursement models that are more representative of the capabilities of technology that's out there. Yeah, I think a really interesting example of um, the idea of permanence uh, is actually within the pharmaceutical industry right now. So we do a lot of work in pharma, and all of these companies are scrambling to keep their trials going because you know, nobody's going to clinic right now because of COVID. And so if you're not going to the clinic, you're not, you know, you're, you're not able to participate in a clinical trial. Um, and so an area that these pharma companies see as a perfect opportunity for sensors is in safety monitoring. So a huge conversation going on around how to support safety monitoring with wearable sensors. So any kind of clinical trial, you're, you're, you're giving somebody an investigational drug, they're going into that clinic every couple of weeks to get their vital signs, right? Just to make sure that everything's okay um, with, you know, given the investigational drug. And so they're asking themselves, well, you know, do we really need for people to get in their car, go, to, go into the hospital, go to the clinic to get vital signs, recognizing that there's risk associated with that of, of infection. So how do we, how do we push that to the, to the home? So, and that's not going to go back, right? So every pharma company out there is making an aggressive push to at least make the safety monitoring component of their protocols um, uh, tenable with a wearable sensor. And it just, it makes more sense for everybody. So this is, again, this is an area where I think that there's going to be that, that permanence, but to, just to echo Ryan's point, is all predicated on uh, on clinical grade data. Um, you know, when you're going to be submitting something to the FDA, it has to be clinical grade and needs the validation. And so I, I 100% uh, am on board with that comment. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Ryan, I'm going back to the conversation that we had the last time you were on the podcast, where you know it's this shift from acute monitoring to continuous monitoring, right? Like it's like this ability to, whereas before maybe I'm only going to see the doctor. Um, one to two times a year and I'm measuring my blood pressure and I'm measuring my heart rate, you know, when I'm in the, in, in, when I'm in the actual clinical setting. And now it's this continuous monitoring that it's like on the hour, every single minute um, or every minute on the hour uh, where I'm gathering these different metrics and I'm creating this data set, like you said, so that I have this benchmark to then compare against to see where are the anomalies. So as we kind of wrap up here, let me ask you guys, like, where do you see, what, what are you most excited about? in terms of your own sort of um, specialty and, and your expertise. Um, what, what are you, because I know that like obviously everything right now is framed in the context of uh, COVID, but obviously this applies way beyond just this one specific use case. I mean, you can think of these things being used for all kinds of different uh, diseases and, and being able to detect these different things and monitor different things. Um, and I know, Ryan, the last time we talked, it was like this idea that, and, and I know that like Chris could probably speak to this too, is this idea that the machine learning has gotten so much better recently that you're able to, from the same input, you know, from the same type of information that you've been gathering before, you can now actually, um, you can assess new things because machine learning has become more powerful. You can find things like the blood pressure and you can see like, with a higher um, accuracy rate, you know, what's actually being detected there. So across the next <clears throat> two to five years, what, uh, what are the things, um, you know, within this whole space that uh, you're most excited about that you think will have some of the farthest reaching uh, sort of impact? So I'll take this first and then, um, and then let Chris go. <laughs> okay. I, I 
I would say I'm, I am most excited. It's a little, uh, it probably sounds weird to say I'm, I'm excited about this current pandemic environment, but there are few things in, uh, that, that I can think of that would have accelerated the adoption and the, um, the awareness around the capabilities than an environment like we're in now. Because um, it was, like we've mentioned before in this discussion, it's, these were all trends that were occurring uh, prior to this pandemic environment. But you're seeing things get accelerated that would have taken five, 10 years, maybe longer. And you're seeing that happen in weeks where that just would not have happened before this current environment. So um, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, I don't think in many, in many aspects of this, I don't think we go back to what was previously normal. And there's, I can't think of really much anything, much of anything else that would have accelerated the, these previous trends uh, in the way that, that this current environment has. It, it obviously comes with massive uh, pain and suffering and, and difficulty across a variety of different spectrums. But uh, the, the level of acceleration that, this, that we're seeing this provide is, is also unprecedented. And so that's exciting to me, given that, uh, as we talked about before, the, the elements are there, the components are there. What this current environment has done is broken down a lot of the barriers and a lot of the walls to, to really accelerate these trends and accelerate the adoption of these capabilities. Yeah, so I think uh, Ryan absolutely nailed it with respect to market readiness. I've got nothing to add there. I'll, I'll approach this from a different angle, more on the from a technology perspective. Um, you know, so deep nets are these amazing, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing tool. Um, uh, but it's not, they're, they're not perfect. They don't work for everything. But what they were really, really good at is with these types of, of data. Um, and uh, but the issue has always been, you know, in order to effectively leverage uh, a deep neural network to generate new, new algorithms, you need a ton of data. And, you know, we're now at that point, you know, we, we, we've crossed that, that threshold of critical mass of data to really advance how we're able to generate these, these new biomarkers. So like an example here, uh, it used to be that, um, so let's say, for example, um, detecting or you know, converting an ECG into a heart rate. Um, you know, traditionally we've used an engineered algorithm to do that. Um, it's, it's a venerable algorithm that's been around for a long time, um, but we have now transitioned that as well as pretty much all of our algorithms to, uh, they, uh, they're derived from, from neural nets. And they do such a better job um, than these, these traditional approaches. And so the more data that we're going to get, um, particularly with the acceleration that Ryan just mentioned uh, with respect to COVID, means the more new biomarkers we're gonna get. And so we're gonna go from, you know, currently a situation or uh, an environment where we can, you know, detect an anomaly at a personalized level, right? We know when people are getting sick, um, but we're not actually, we don't know exactly what it is, right? Is this a heart failure exacerbation or is this COPD exacerbation or is this sepsis? With the acceleration of data, the, the power of these deep nets applied to those data sets we will then move from kind of prognostic, prognostic to diagnostic, where we will know what a specific signal is coming from a patient so that we know exactly what to treat. And, and that 
there's going to be a massive step change there in in very short period of time. Love it. Andy, closing thoughts? I'm I'm really excited on two fronts. When you think about proper telehealth, the ability to do remote continuous monitoring really is going to improve outcomes for patients. I mean, who wants to spend a week in a hospital having your heart being monitored? Much better to be able to go home and watch the person's recovery from home. And for a person for whom uh, doctor's visits, you know, are difficult, maybe mobility impaired, maybe living rural, uh, the ability to deliver, you know, a remote sensing package and then do monitoring and diagnostics remotely is a real benefit. And so there's going to be a lot of positive changes for the healthcare system as it's adopted. Now on consumer side, you see such wide adoption of wearable devices, especially hearables, which are really accelerating, and the technology to put heart rate, PPG, temperature, and not too far down the road, vocal cues, like what the company Audio Analytic is working on, you know, where they can monitor different vocalizations and, and what they mean. You put all that in a package that millions of people are walking around wearing all day long, you really get an interesting picture, both on macro level, you start to see you know, trends in infectious disease spreads, but even on individual level, a doctor is not going to make a diagnosis off a consumer hearable device. However, the consumer himself is going to get early warning that something is up and will cue them to get appropriate medical care sooner so that they will have a better outcome from not having waited and waited and waited with no idea whether this is gonna be serious enough for a visit or can I ride it out? So that sort of early diagnostic at consumer level will cue the patient that uh, you know it's time to seek professional care sooner. It'll help reduce the spread of infectious diseases and give that person uh, a better outcome as well. So it's really very exciting on both consumer and on uh, medical grade fronts. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I think that for me, just as we kind of wrap here, um, you know, I come from the world of hearing aids and I can't help but feel incredibly bullish about the future of hearing aids, thinking about, you know, the patient demographic that you have typically with that being older adults and this idea that, you know, you might be able to have <laughs> just such a powerful early detection tool, a diagnostic tool patient monitor, um, you know, this whole idea of hear, you know, a hearing aid in particular and just all different types of wearable devices, being able to serve this preventative health tool is already compelling uh, as highlighted even more so by this pandemic. But I think that moving forward, I think it's going to be a tremendously uh, compelling use case. And I just think of uh, how beneficial this will be to, you know, the millions of folks that have hearing loss that can benefit from a secondary use case where it's helping to monitor um, lots of different comorbidities and such. So uh, I really appreciate you three coming on. This was a tremendous discussion. I think that we covered a ton of ground. I'm going to have to go back and listen through because there is a lot of information packed in here. Um, but I appreciate you guys coming on. I appreciate everybody listening in to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.